According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Philippians and about ready to wrap up this uh, paragraph here in Philippians 3. We're down to the bottom now of verses 7 through 11. And... uh, we're talking about the three realms of knowledge that, uh, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's experiential righteousness, not positional, as we've discussed. And then verse 10, that I may know him. Doesn't he already know him? I thought Paul was already a believer. Of course he knows him, but this is so much more than positional sanctification. This is experiential that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And so there's a threefold description of what it means to know Christ on this experiential basis. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If perhaps maybe I might attain to the resurrection from the dead or the out-resurrection from the dead. And it's a, it's a verse with many puzzles, and uh, we're going to try to uh, we're going to try to solve that puzzle here together this morning. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that is ours this morning, Father. This is your grace provision. This is our grace blessing. And so we give you the praise and glory for uh, keeping the doors open and the lights on, the bills paid. Thank you for um, the the provision that the word of God can go forth this morning. So we come before you as uh, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth and calling upon your faithfulness, the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit to guide us into all things, even the deep things of God. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so we recognize that knowing Christ is a bigger concept than just being saved. That yes, we come to know him, we come to know Christ, we come to Christ. Those are idioms and expressions that do relate to our salvation, but that's not limited to our salvation. The same idioms, the same expressions are used for so much more than just the positional uh, sanctification for what it is. It is used more frequently, I believe. I think it's more common that these terms are used for the experiential sanctification that we have after salvation. And uh, as we work our way through it, we come down through A, B, and C. And this, we're presently in the midst of C, knowing Christ with three specific aspects. And this is, as we said before the prayer, was the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, and being conformed to his death. The power of his resurrection, we've covered already, it is the grace empowerment to walk in the newness of life. It is the grace empowerment. Understand all of this is a grace. We don't deserve any of this. And as saved beings, we don't deserve any of this. And the fact that we have this empowerment is a grace provision because Old Testament saints didn't have this. David and and, uh, Noah and Daniel and Job and all those Old Testament saints, you think about it, uh, they were believers. They were born again. They had eternal life. But were they provided grace empowerment to walk in the newness of life? Not at all. They were put under law, uh, told to keep the law. They had 613 commandments to keep the law and no grace empowerment to do so. And here we are, not under law, but under grace and provided grace empowerment. It's a marvelous thing that we're given. The grace empowerment to walk in the newness of life as Jesus Christ was raised to the glory of the Father. See, that, that requires the risen, victorious, glorious Savior seated at the Father's right hand. And uh, so, of course, Old Testament saints didn't have this. Old Testament saints didn't have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Old Testament saints didn't have the, the Holy Spirit to indwell them. How could the Holy Spirit be given if Jesus was not yet ascended? See, And so all these things, we take them for granted. We've got to stop taking them for granted. We've got to start recognizing everything that's ours in Christ, that is, the uh, heritage of the body and bride of Jesus Christ. The uh, fellowship of his sufferings is the grace empathy. I think we've got a grace empowerment. We've got a grace empathy to suffer with and comfort one another. 
as, uh, as our brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering, we suffer with them. It's called the fellowship of his sufferings, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions and uh, other references that we have there. I liked the Colossians 1.24 most especially. Let me grab that one here real quick. <clears throat> Colossians 1.24, because Paul's talking about this. <clears throat> I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. It's like something to rejoice over. We're commanded to rejoice in everything. <clears throat> and in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. And that's a nice play on words there, isn't it, with the idea of flesh and body. But in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body. See, once we leave this flesh, we're done with our sufferings, right? When we cast off this body and we're ascended and we put on the body of glory, then our suffering is complete. But during the time of our sojourn, we go through this. I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What is deficient, what is lacking. Now, it's not talking about something back on Good Friday. It's not talking about the passion of the Christ or the suffering of Christ uh, when he went to the cross or the crucifixion in any way. Uh, there was nothing deficient on that day. But what is lacking in Christ's affliction talks about the ongoing affliction, the ongoing ministry, how it is that the body now suffers. The head, he's done with his suffering, but now the body is suffering throughout the entire church age. And we're called to bear those burdens. We're called to suffer with those who suffer. And so when he talks about filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, and he's happy to take his share. He says, I do my share. I think he probably took more than his fair share. <laughs> I expect that, uh, you know, he will, he'll, uh, he'll take more and more and more as much as the Lord wants to pile on. See, kind of, you know, the attitude my mother had with respect to, uh, you know, abuse and, and verbal abuse and, and whatever. She felt that if people were slandering her and criticizing her and saying wicked things against her, she felt, well, that she could handle it. And that was, that way, uh, maybe there was somebody else who couldn't handle it quite so much that was not uh, getting as much, you know, that, uh, that, you know, she served as the, as the decoy or she served as the, the target for, uh, to, to, to take away the attention from other people maybe that couldn't handle it like that. But anyway, I'm not describing it very well, but that's how she described it. That's, uh, but this is what we're talking about, the fellowship of his sufferings. And we should have fellowship in this. This should be the, the koinonia, the sharing uh, of these sufferings. It's a grace empathy to suffer with. And if you don't have that capacity, if you're looking around at other people and their sufferings and saying, whew, glad that's not me, uh, and uh, wait a minute, that, there, where's the fellowship there? We're supposed to have the fellowship of his sufferings. And then the third and final aspect here is being conformed to his death. This is the grace emulation. I wanted another E word to go with grace empowerment, grace empathy, grace emulation, because we imitate Christ. We emulate him. The grace emulation to sacrificially love and stay faithful until death. To be conformed to his death means that we accept that ourselves in our thinking, that we have that love perspective, that love attitude. And if we don't, if we're not willing to lay down our life for the sheep, then we, uh, we're failing in this third aspect of what it means to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. It is the grace emulation to sacrificially love and stay faithful until death. Of course, that's Revelation 2.10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. <coughs> All right, so let's uh, work our way through these passages, and then we'll be ready for verse 11, and ready to talk about this possible resurrection that Paul might get to go to someday. All right, and why is that even iffy? Why, uh, why is he talking about it as if it's a maybe? Okay, so, because it's not what we think it is. And, uh, We'll deal with that as well. All right, so John 15. Being conformed to his death is the grace emulation to sacrificially love and stay faithful until death. So we love and love and we keep on loving and we don't draw a line in the sand and say, well, that's enough of that. Uh, no more, right? Uh, if it means laying down our life, it means laying down our life. And uh, there is no greater love. And we should be clear on this. So in John 15, we have this, verses uh, 9 through 21, through really the bulk of the chapter here. But this is uh, the chapter, you remember, that talks about us abiding in Christ. 
this is the chapter where uh, we have the, the language of the vine and the, um, the blessings here. So let me just start. I know it says 9 through 21, but if you remember, the, uh, of all the I am passages, we have the I am, my Father is, and you are. And it's very unique in this capacity. None of the other I am messages have this. So uh, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. And so this is an I am message that highlights both himself and his Father and his hearers, the disciples. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And uh, all the, the doctrine that goes with this. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Uh, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And so, I mean, it's, it's clear. This, this metaphor is so simple and straightforward. You chop that vine off, you separate it from its root, and, uh, and you just killed it. It's not, it's done. It's, it's, it's no longer drawing its nourishment. It's no longer drawing what it needs to draw. It's not going to be producing more fruit. That's, uh, that's the nature of it. So if we, uh, if we're supposed to abide in Christ in order to bear fruit, it, I think that imagery is pretty powerful. I am the vine and you are the branches. Again, how unique is that? You know, there weren't any in, in I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of heaven, I am the light of the world. You know, look at all the other I am passages that Jesus gave here in the Gospel of John, and this one stands out because this one has the I am and my Father is and you are applications. Um, anyway, so we're supposed to bear fruit and we're supposed to glorify the Father. And uh, we're supposed to have uh, an effective prayer life in the in the uh, context of this, all right? So verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And that's what it's about. We want to bear as much fruit as possible because our Father is worthy of that glory. Now, we get to the love application. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love abide in my love. And so we're abiding in his word, we're abiding in his love. And this, uh, this is really what that conformed to his death is all about, because it was love that motivated him throughout the whole sacrifice there on the cross. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. And if you think about it, the, the uh, throwing away of that full joy, I think, happens when believers stop abiding, stop bearing fruit, they draw a line and say, ooh, I'm not going there, and they limit what they're doing in obedience to the Father, in abiding in the Word of God, and abiding in love, see? And they drew a limit, they said, oh, I'm done, I'm not going, I'm not doing that one more time, I'm done. And uh, thankfully our Savior didn't do that. Thankfully he didn't uh, draw a line in the sand and say, that's it. He continued to obey, he continued to obey, continued to humble himself, trusting in his Father, and that's, that's the pattern there for us. And so uh, verses 12 and following then, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And so if we're going to walk in love like this, then it may, God may ask us to, to make that ultimate sacrifice. He may ask us to, to, uh, to imitate Christ in martyrdom, to, uh, to pay that, that ultimate price. And really, is it, is, it an, is it that bad a price to pay for the sake of brothers and sisters, for, uh, for glorifying the Lord, for serving one another in this way? And uh, I mean, honestly, to lay down your life for the body of Christ Hey, he, he died for us while we were sinners. <laughs> he, he died for us before we were saved, before we were made righteous. And uh, for us to love one another is, uh, is pretty easy in comparison. All right. Anyway, there's more. It goes all the way down um, related to that. And expect that as you do this, there's going to be conflict. If, verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Uh, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So recognize this. When you're walking in love and abiding in Christ, when you're conformed to his death, 
That, that's, that might be the mechanism that makes it happen. <laughs> might be the world that hates you is going gonna, is gonna to put you to death. Okay? You know, just be ready. And that's the, uh, the application there. All right, how about Ephesians? Ephesians 5, another passage related to love and being conformed to his death. Ephesians 5, and a passage that uh, good for uh, premarital counseling, good for husbands, good for a lot of things related to loving your wives as Christ loved the church and uh, the applications here. But in verses 1 and 2 in the first part of the chapter, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, or emulators, if you need an E for your acronym, if you, if you want to keep it alliterative, with grace empowerment, grace empathy, and grace emulation. Therefore be emulators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So here we have another passage whereby the uh, conform to his death is connected to love. And his death was freely uh, done. It was a volitional death on his part, freely done on a love basis for you and for me. And we're called to emulate that. So we have the, the verb of imitation, we have the application of love, and we have the death of Christ, all there in that same context. And this is, uh, is what we're talking about. Again, being conformed to his death. I've read a lot of things uh, commentaries and opinions and ideas of what they think conform to his death is all about. And I tell you, most of them are, are disappointing in the fact that they don't mention love and they don't mention the, uh, the volitional sacrifice. And I tell you, if you can't figure that out, what, do you, what are you doing? This is what uh, his death is all about. All right, there's an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma and uh, when you get down to verse uh, 25 is when it hits the husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so, again, we have the sacrificial love. We have the death of Christ for us to imitate and uh, the mandate for every husband in marriage that that's what we're called to do because we're the picture of Christ in the church. The husband's role is the role of sacrificial love, and the wife's role is the role of submission. And it's, um, it's hated today. Subjection is, uh, is cast in a, in a bad light, and it's criticized, and it's redefined. And uh, some of the, the Christian feminists have found ways to redefine it, so it's upside down and backwards, and it's not sub- subjection at all. But they call it subjection. And uh, tragic what they've done with that. All right, so uh, we have the text there. How about 1 John? 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to be conformed to his death. It's going to involve love. First John 4, verses 7 through 11. Again, we have a context where uh, there's a contrast between those that are in Christ and those that are not in Christ. And uh, we have been called out of this world in the aspect of that, having been saved. So verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Okay? Now, all the different terms for love in terms of agape, phileo, storgos, eros, any other kind of love, and it's, it's uh, a blessing, and the Greeks, I think, were smart to have different words for different loves, and uh, English is kind of dumb to have one word for love in terms of, you know, I love God, I love my wife, I love my church, I love cheeseburgers, I love pluckers. You know, what are we talking about? We use love for so many different things. I love playing Scrabble. You know, we have all these, and we use that same word love. And, uh, and so I think we lose the sense of how special agape is. Now, unbelievers can love their uh, wives, and they can love their children, and they can love cheeseburgers and whatever, but they don't have agape. Agape comes from God, and agape is not humanly produced. And uh, it, is, uh, it is a facet, it is a testimony of, uh, of your born-again status if, in fact, you are observing the, that fruit of the Spirit, the first one of which is love, and if you're observing the love of God that's been shed abroad and poured forth in your heart, that's, that's testimony to your salvation. And so uh, we see it. 
So love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And I would put forth that no unbeliever can exhibit, uh, can produce agape love. And uh, this certainly can't be a conduit of God's agape love. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By, and, and this is the sacrificial giving of self. The sacrificial giving of self to benefit others, that's agape love. And uh, it's not an emotion, it's not uh, romance, it's not touchy-feely, it's, uh, it's sacrificially giving of self to the benefit of others is agape love. And uh, that's, that's what God is, God is love. So by this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And so love is manifested. It's actually manifested twice. It's manifested in the Father's sending and it's manifested in the Son's going. All right? Because the Son did not go involuntarily. And the Son, yes, He was obedient, but yes, He was there of His own volition. The, the God so loved the world that He gave and Christ so loved the church that He gave Himself. And uh, it's, it's, it's giving uh, in, in every application. If it's taking... Not giving, if, if you flip it upside down and you, th- you want to be a taker and you want to whatever, you know, if you're only loving because of what you get out of it, that's not agape, okay? Uh, agape is not taking, agape is giving. And, and even if it's not returned, even if it's not appreciated, you know, God so loved the world, the world wasn't lovely. The world hated him. He came to those, who were, that were, he came to his own, his own received him not, all right? And try doing that with phileo love. Try doing that with storgos love. Try doing that with uh, with eros love, erotic love. You know, it's just, if it's not being responded to, if it's not being returned, if it's not, you know, those are loves that give things back and, and, and so forth because they have that rapport connected to them. And if without that rapport, they just dissolve. It doesn't happen. Not so with agape love. Agape love does not need that response feedback to maintain it because it's coming from the integrity of the of the giver of the lover, and that's uh, that's huge, okay? That's huge, and that's right there. That's six weeks of premarital counseling in ten minutes. How about that? <laughs> All right. So, by this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Yeah, we had physical life, but without, without Christ, you don't have spiritual life. You don't have Zoe. You don't have eternal life in Christ. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so while we were sinners, you know, we weren't looking for Him. While we were sinners, He sent His Son. And that's what we're supposed to do. So we're not, we're not picking and choosing our love targets based on what we think we're going to get out of it or based on what they've done for me lately or based on what, whether I think they deserve it or not. Okay? If we're picking and choosing the targets for our agape love, that's, we're not exercising agape love. So, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The pattern is there, and we're called to emulate that pattern. And it's not payback, and it's not because he did this. The ought to is, uh, is not in a recompense ought to. The ought to is by virtue of what we are now in Christ. The fact that we are baptized in union with Christ, the fact that we are one with the Father and with the Son. And so now we, it's, it's, it should be just normal for our new position in Christ. It should be, it, it, it's necessary, it's described here as an ought to, we ought to love. And the reason why we ought to is because we are now a heavenly people. We are now in union with Christ and with the Father. And since God is love, how can we not love one another? You see what I'm saying? It's not as a payback. It is not as a making it up to God, or it's not as a, um, it's not in the, in that reciprocal uh, uh, rapport kind of thing. Okay, it should come sacrificially, unconditionally from our integrity now as heavenly beings. So, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. And so there's a perfection that happens. And we train it, and we develop it, and we exercise it. And it's uh, part of our invisible side of things, not the visible side of things. And so by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. That's, that's what allows us to bridge the visible and the invisible and operate on that basis. 
We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Anyway, that's past where I was going to stop. We're going to take 7 through 11 and deal with that. And then finally, Revelation 2.10. Revelation 2.10. Do we draw a line? Do we serve up to a point? This is to the angel of the church of Smyrna, right? The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. Say, death, then life. Evening, then morning. That's the order. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so we have it. Then verse 11 closes it out here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. All right, be faithful unto death. That's the imperative, be faithful unto death. If, uh, if your love has deadlines, <laughs> if your love has uh, you know um, lines in the sand beyond which you will not cross, then you have a form of godliness while denying its power. You have a version of, uh, of, of what you're calling love that doesn't line up with uh, the Bible's defini- definition of love. Remember? 1 Corinthians 13. Okay? And if you're drawing lines in the sand, if you have limits, love bears all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. Why did you draw that line in the sand? Okay? Love, you know, you're, you're limiting what love doesn't limit, what agape doesn't limit. Okay? Because it's agape through all those, that description there in 1 Corinthians 13. And, uh, and love does not seek its own, okay? Agape does not seek its own. If you're seeking your own, if you're, if you're looking for, uh, if you're lo- looking for, uh, you know, some kind of a, you know, treat or some kind of a benefit to, uh, well, you know, if I scratch your back, you know, you scratch mine, or if I, you know, if I, if I give you flowers, am I, what am I expecting kind of a thing? See, that's not agape. <laughs> it's not agape. And because uh, agape does not seek its own. Agape is not looking for what I'm going to get back if I give this. Okay? That's not agape. So, uh, the application's there. There's so much meat in this. The, um, the, but it's coming from the Alpha and the Omega who is dead and has come to life. That's the, uh, the issue here on conformity to his death. Conformity to his death. All right then. Verse 11. Assuming, of course, that uh, we grow to this kind of maturity. Let me get back to Philippians. And, and, uh, and very quickly, Paul's going to say, look, I'm not there yet. He wants to be there, but he's not there yet. And if Paul's not there yet, why do I think I'm there yet? But to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed unto his death, if perhaps maybe I might attain or arrive at the out-resurrection from the dead. And, and, the, and the, the, probably the biggest problem in this verse is the word resurrection. And, uh, and then all the wishy-washy language of potential that leads up to the word resurrection. And then the combination of having resurrection spoken of as a maybe. Uh, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the puzzle that makes this uh, verse so difficult. Uh, in order that I might maybe attain to the resurrection from the dead. What are we talking about? Why is this sacrificial death conformity, why is it so vital? Well, this is point five in the outline. Sacrificial death conformity is especially vital for the deathless rapture participants. Sacrificial death conformity is especially vital for the deathless rapture participants. Verse 11 is a rapture reference. It's a rapture reference, but it's often missed as a rapture reference. And even those that defend it as a rapture reference have to make a defense based upon the difficulties of the verse. And it's curious to me, the people that deny it's a rapture reference they will admit that there are difficulties in the verse. 
but they just don't like the rapture solution to the difficulties in the verse. Okay? But I'm convinced this is a rapture reference, that the out-resurrection is the rapture event, that the out-resurrection is, is not the normal word for resurrection in this verse. All right? It's a very unique term that's used. And the language of potential, again, is very unique in the way that it's used. And so we've got to deal with this. And we'll just take it slowly and walk our way through. But the idea of uh, why do I want to be conformed to his death? Why do I want to be willing to lay down my life at any moment? Well, if the trumpet sounds right now, then <laughs> solves that, doesn't it? You know, if I'm going to lay down my life and I'm willing today to lay down my life, think about it. The imminency of the rapture, does that, does that help or does that hurt the uh, conformity to his death mindset? It's completely beneficial. It's completely helpful to the uh, uh, sacrificial death conformity mindset. And so I think uh, we can demonstrate that from here. I think we can demonstrate that from Ephesians, from Hebrews chapter 10 where, uh, and from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where if we are moment by moment, all day, every day, considering this is the rapture day, it impacts everything else. The trumpet's going to sound today. And if not, well then, okay, fine, I'll go to bed tonight, uh, convinced that it's going to happen while I'm sleeping. All right? And then if not, if, uh, if it's an alarm clock instead of a trumpet that wakes me up in the morning, all right, well, okay, Lord, today is the day the trumpet's going to sound. Okay? Today is the day. And so I'm not going to get worked up over these other things. I'm not going to get worked up over how long this other test is lasting. I'm not going to get worked up over the possibility that I may lay down my life today. I may lay it down today because I'm ready anyway. I'm ready anyway with that sense of imminency. Rapture doctrine gives us that sense of imminency. All right. Well, we have um, three things here, I think, that really contribute to this conclusion. Uh, but first of all, let's just read it on a surface level and, and ask ourselves what makes sense, okay? Because uh, if you're reading words and they don't make any sense, then are you really reading? So he's talking about counting all things but loss, counting everything but loss, that I may gain Christ, but he's already saved. You're not talking about getting saved. That I may gain Christ, may be found in him, that I may know him. And so he's talking about a maturity in his Christian walk that he hasn't reached yet, but he wants to be there. And he wants to get there as soon as he can, because today can be the rapture. Today can be the trumpet day. If perhaps I can arrive, I will arrive. I have arrived at the out-resurrection from the dead. So, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that, if perhaps I might be attaining to the out-resurrection from the dead, to the rapture of the church. Okay? Now, does that make more sense? I want to be found in Him. I want to be walking right. I want to be in fellowship. I want to be serving Him. I want to, be, I want to have the most intimate walk possible with Christ when the trumpet sounds. If, in fact, this is the day the trumpet sounds. Or, do you think it makes more sense for him to say, I want to know Christ, I want to, I want to walk in resurrection power, I want to have fellowship of suffering, I want to be conformed to his death, in order that maybe someday I might get resurrected from the dead. Explain that one to me. Okay? You know, if, if, if you're a believer and you believe in eternal security and you believe in the resurrection of the, of the living and the dead, and that Jesus is ready to judge the living and the dead, you know, resurrection's not a maybe. Everybody gets a resurrection. Some get a better resurrection, okay? And uh, even unbelievers are going to have a resurrection because every knee will bend, every tongue will confess. It will be resurrected to stand at the great white throne and then cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. So resurrection is not a maybe. But this verse has all the, the maybe terminology uh, connected to, uh, to it. And then we start to say, well, wait a minute. That's not really the word for resurrection either. Why is it translated resurrection? Why do we have a compound? Why do we have a, a, um, an out-resurrection term? What's an out-resurrection? Is that different from a resurrection? Yeah? It's a deathless resurrection. It is, a, it is being transformed without dying first. 
And that's what the rapture of the church is all about. All right. We have uncertainty in the conditional particles. A, pos, is what we have here. If, maybe. If, perhaps. If, somehow. Okay? It's an if followed by a how. So, how's that going to (laughs) happen? Okay? If, how. If, perhaps. If, somehow. I might. And then the subjunctive mood attached to I might be resurrected. So there's an uncertainty in the conditional particles. He speaks of it as an if. Elsewhere, if, when you go to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, join me there, and let's see if we can find some uncertainty here. I'll give you a clue. We won't. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15. And um, the promise of the resurrection the um, in verse 12 first corinthians 15:12 if christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead how and we have a, a an incredulous how in the world do these idiots talk about there being no resurrection right how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead what moron in corinth doesn't think there's such a thing as resurrection If there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. You're wasting your time on a Sunday morning coming to church if there's no resurrection. Moreover, we're even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ from the dead, whom He did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. He said, we're false teachers. We're a bunch of liars if there's no resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Those who have uh, fallen asleep in Christ have perished. We, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. I don't see any doubt in Paul's mind concerning the resurrection. That Christ is raised. That we will be raised. That it is a certainty. It is guaranteed. There is not a doubt in any, any uh, um, way, shape, or form. Then uh, some other things that happen here in 20 and following. Um, uh, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who were asleep. Since by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection of the dead. If you want to doubt the resurrection, you might as well doubt Adam's original sin and the, the fallen human race. And then, then what are we doing? For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Anyway, then we get into some other things there, down through verse 27. Um, down to verse uh, 35, someone will say, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And uh, he says, what a dumb question, you fool. <laughs> okay. And so it's curious to me the way he's addressing each of these arguments against the resurrection, which he says aren't even arguments when you think about it. Um, You want to know the mechanics? You want to know how it's raised? You want to know what kind of body? And you want to know specifics? You know, if we can debate specifics, that's fine. But that's not to argue the reality of of the event itself. We are all going to be raised. But Paul says, okay, well, so he starts to describe the nature of it. But then when we get down to, uh, so let's see, verse 46, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. So Adam was the first man, but he was earthy, made out of the, out of the dirt. Jesus came from heaven. So in our physical bodies, we've, uh, we've been Adamic. We've been like Adam. We're, we're dirt bodies ourselves. But on the resurrection body... We're going to be heavenly. So uh, we've, we've borne the first. We're going to bear the next. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Guaranteed. No uh, ifs, ands, or buts. No question about it. No maybe. We've had a physical body. We're getting a heavenly body. 
So his, when he's writing in Philippians 3, if perhaps I might attain, he's not talking about the resurrection. What's he talking about? I believe he's talking about the rapture. And this is the language of maybe and potential that we have um, in uh, this next paragraph in, 1 Corinthians 15, verses uh, 50 and, and following. Because not everybody dies. We all get raised, but not everybody dies. So I say this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Uh, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. So there is a rapture generation. And I hope it's us. I want it to be us. I believe it is us. There is a rapture generation when the trumpet sounds, and we will be we will experience a deathless resurrection called the rapture of the church. It is a translation, it is a transformation. He's not going to kill everybody so he can raise our dead bodies. We're going to be transformed without experiencing the physical death. So we will not all perish. We will not all sleep. Not every Christian is going to experience physical death. But we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. It's just going to be like that. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. And so we don't precede those that have fallen asleep. The dead in Christ rise first. And that's what we see here. First Thessalonians 4 is in complete harmony with 1 Corinthians 15. The dead will be raised imperishable. So that means my mother and any other, you know, uh, Mike and others that are with the Lord now, okay, they're going to rise first. Then we will be changed. And that makes sense, right? Because of the rapture event, we're going to be snatched up to meet the Lord in the air. This present body wouldn't survive the snatching, <laughs> you know? This present body would, would sustain a lot of damage going through the, the ceiling and the, and the steel roof and the, you know, <laughs> not a pleasant experience to be yanked up through there. But in a body of glory, you know, did, did uh, the locked doors and windows, did that stop Jesus from getting into the upper room there when, when he met with his disciples on Resurrection Sunday? Okay, yeah, that steel roof's not going to stop any of us when we get transformed and when we get yanked up, okay? The body of our resurrection glory is going to be uh, something else, not bound by material things. And so, uh, but... It, but who gets to do this now? We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. So that could have been Paul's generation. That could have, it wasn't. You know, we're here 2,000 years later. It could be our generation. I pray that it is. But when my great-grandson is preaching the rapture doctrine, I hope he remembers that his great-grandfather used to preach this expecting that he thought he was the rapture generation, Right? Because I can't imagine how much worse things could get. And I don't want to tempt the Lord and say, how much worse can it get? <clears throat> but, hey, this verse talks about a trump. And we've got a trump in office, so... <laughs> could we be close? All right. The trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised. Imperishable. We will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, this mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable will put on the imperishable, and this mortal will put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Okay? And so this is it. And in this context then, when you get to the end of the chapter, therefore, my beloved brethren, with rapture doctrine at the forefront of your thinking, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. If rapture doctrine is the forefront of your thinking, then your personal diligence, your personal godliness gets a huge boost. You can embrace a verse like, therefore, beloved, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Or you can embrace a passage that says, that I may know him in the fellowship of his suffering, in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed unto his death, if perhaps I may arrive at the out-resurrection, at the rapture of the church. Okay? <clears throat> so I think the uncertainty 
in the conditional particles points to the rapture better than it points to the, um, you know, some resurrection on the last day. Speaks of Paul being a, a living, deathless rapture participant, if that makes sense. All right. There's also uncertainty in the verb katantao. Katantao. Strong's number is 2658. It's not used very often in the New Testament. Um, katantao. To arrive, to attain, to uh, be worthy of something, to, uh, to arrive at an event. If there was a process that got you there and then you get there. Katantao um, is the verb. K-A-T-A-N-T-A-O. It's one of your alpha omega words that ends in the alpha omega uh-o endings. You don't get that till late second year because it's not the easiest of conjugations to memorize and deal with. Acts 26, 7. Plus there's so few of the uh-o verbs anyway that you don't need it in your first year or second year. Acts 26, 7. Cut unto. The biggest problem, though, when you delay your ao verbs is that agapao is an ao verb, and so um, that's why you end up with a lot of phileo verbs instead of agapao, just because of the form it takes. Anyway, Paul is going to arrive here. Actually, no, as he's giving a defense. Acts twenty six. Uh, talking here to Agrippa, and we get down uh, verse 6, I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to katantao, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to arrive at, hope to reach, hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. And so there's a promise made by the fathers, or to the fathers. And there's a promise that's made. And there's a promise which, for all these generations, they haven't seen it yet. They haven't seen it yet. And uh, most of these generations then have died without receiving what was promised. See, is it fair to say that they haven't attained to it or they'll never attain to it? Or is that promise still valid? Is the kingdom still coming? Yeah, the kingdom's still coming. And uh, what a joy for that generation to be the generation when the kingdom comes. Don't you think? Well, it's also going to be a tribulation <laughs> to be that generation when the kingdom comes. So the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. And uh, of course, it has nothing to do with the church. It's all for Israel. So why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So anyway, that's part of his argument there. Ephesians 4.13 Ephesians 4.13, as we talk about attaining. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all katantao, until we all arrive, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so this is, here's an interesting use of katantao, and a process of our growing, and a process of, of advancing towards a point, and not claiming that I'm there yet, but I'm still advancing to that point, I'm, I'm getting closer. If I, if, I, if I claim that I'm done, well then why am I still here? If I claim that I've attained to that, then... Uh, why am I still under teaching? Why am I still in Bible class? Why am I still on earth? All right. So I'm still growing. I'm still reaching forward. I'm still not claiming that I've arrived yet, but I'm hoping to arrive. And maybe today will be the day. And that's like the imminency of rapture doctrine as we uh, deal with it there. And so as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of man, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. See, I think this, uh, I think if we're focusing on the rapture, if we're focusing on that imminency, if we're focusing on that, it's a, it, it's, it's a goad. It's a goad to diligence. It's a goad to stability. Anyway, 
the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Is that verse talking about my personal maturity? Is it talking about the corporate maturity? Is it talking about corporate completion? Or all of the above? Okay, I think so. I think it's a personal application to make, but I think you can also see that completion, the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's what we're headed towards. I'm sorry? Oh yeah, verse 16. From whom uh, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. Yeah, there you go. According to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Which of course gets finished when? At the trumpet, at the rapture of the church, when that bride is complete. All right. And so we've got puzzles. We've got the puzzles of, of uh, the conditional particles. We've got puzzles on the verb katantao. We get the uniqueness of the resurrection noun. We're, we're used to uh, anastasis. We're used to anastasia. We're used to resurrection, to stand again. But here it's ex-anastasis. It is the out-resurrection. It's like uh, you put an exit in front of resurrection, it's not just a resurrection to stand again, but it's an out-resurrection. It's an exit-resurrection. It's we're raised and we're out of here resurrection, like the rapture of the church. Okay, It's not a, a resurrection such as uh, on the last day whereby, you know, uh, the resurrection of the last day when they are raised and they stay here on the earth. And so uh, ex anastasis, uh, Strong's Concordance number is 1815, and uh, your word study won't take you very long because this is it. Uh, it's uh, Hapax Legomenon, it is only used here in uh, Philippians 3.11, and it's used in contrast to the normal word and the concept that we had in verse 10. Philippians 3.10, the power of his... Anastasis, the power of his resurrection. We got the normal word for resurrection there in verse 10. So, you know, Paul is very capable of using the normal word for resurrection. He's very capable of using it. He uses it a lot. He used it in just the previous verse. He uses it in 1 Corinthians 15 extensively. It's the resurrection chapter. So we have a unique term here for this resurrection noun, and this also forms part of the puzzle. Anyway, we take the particles, we take the verb, we take the resurrection noun, we take the uncertainty, and I think the best solution to this puzzle is he's actually re- referencing the rapture of the church. And uh, in order that I may attain to the, uh, the out-resurrection from the dead. The out-resurrection from the dead. What he calls in 1 Thessalonians 4, the harpazo, the snatching. All right. By the way, this was Earl Rodmacher's conclusion, and he wrote an article in the Schaefer Theological Seminary Journal way back in 1998. <laughs> Earl's with the Lord now. Um, got to meet him on a couple of occasions and was very blessed to, uh, to do that. The, uh, this understanding, do I want to pick it up there? This is the journal. Expectancy of the Lord's imminent return. Okay, so he's giving, a, this is a, a journal article where he's breaking down the imminency and why the imminency is uh, a, a prime feature of rapture doctrine. So he approaches it from where you might expect, from 1 Corinthians 15 and from 1 Thessalonians 4, but then he also develops it from Philippians 3. And uh, he says, this understanding of Paul's uh, eager anticipation of the imminent return of the Lord seems to throw light on two rather difficult passages. One of these is Philippians 3.11. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Literally translated, the last words read, the out-resurrection out of the dead. There are a number of possible suggestions for the meaning of the resurrection here. The general resurrection, the first resurrection, the spiritual resurrection, the attainment of rewards at the judgment seat, a partial rapture, and the rapture of the church. Okay. By the way, if you ever meet somebody that teaches a partial rapture, this is the verse they're going to be pointing to. They're going to be pointing to this, saying, look, only the winners get to go out of the rapture. The losers have to stay here for the tribulation. 
And they will point to this and say, see, Paul wasn't sure he was going to make it in the, uh, the, among the winners in the uh, partial rapture theory that they're trying to defend. Anyway, it's, it's fallacious. Uh, several factors strongly support a combination of rapture and consequent reward at the judgment seat of Christ. So that's how he handled this passage. First, the context is strongly in his favor. We've already seen that in their broad context, the Pauline epistles place a recurring emphasis on the rapture. An even stronger Pauline emphasis is the consequent reward for believers who have endured faithfully. And he gives the the verses there. I won't take the time to go through those. In the narrower context of Philippians, we see the same emphasis. Several verses all lay stress on the eschatological day of Christ. Remember that from chapter 1, chapter 2, he talks about the day of Christ, which is rapture and judgment seat. Chapter 1, 6 and 10, uh, chapter 3, 20 and 21, chapter 4, 5. They all lay stress on the eschatological day of Christ and the imminent appearing of Christ, whom we are to be eagerly and momentarily expecting. And so there, there it is. Um, in the immediate context of Philippians 3.11, Paul has discussed justification and sanctification. We agree, therefore, with the conclusion of S. Lewis Johnson, it is certainly fitting that his thoughts move on uh, to the future because glorification is the natural consummation of the life of grace. And so when S. Lewis Johnson preached this, he kind of broke it down into a, a glorification, or into a justification, sanctification, glorification, uh, trinity as he worked his way through these verses. This is further confirmed by the future look in verse 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right here in the same chapter, he's talking about eagerly waiting for Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. That's rapture right there, the transformation. So thus Paul is speaking of something to attain while still living, namely his translation and and consequent reward at the rapture. And I would agree with all of that. A second factor in favor of the rapture here is the doubt and uncertainty expressed in the verse, the particles a post, if by any means. They're only used in three other places, and he lists them there, Romans 1, Romans 11, and Acts 27. In each occurrence, doubt is expressed. This uncertainty is further confirmed by the use of the subjunctive mode of the verb kantantao, that I may attain, I might possibly attain. It's in subjunctive mood. It's the mood of potential, not the mood of reality. The indicative mode is the mode of certainty, whereas the subjunctive expresses contingency and uncertainty. A.T. Robertson says it is the mood of doubt, of hesitation, of proposal, of prohibition, of anticipation, of expectation, of brooding hope, of imperious will. (laughs) Imperious. There you go. All right. I wonder if that, that must be, I played Imperia in a Scrabble game yesterday and maybe because I had read this recently. uh, This evident uncertainty makes it inconceivable then that Paul is speaking of the first resurrection. Inconceivable. With all that doubt, with all that potential, it's inconceivable that he's going to apply that to the the first resurrection. Because that's guaranteed. That is absolutely certain. His previous words in 1 Corinthians 15, he'd already written 1 Corinthians before he writes Philippians. His previous words in 1 Corinthians 15 evidence anything but doubt. Nor can it refer to the spiritual resurrection. For Paul states in many other passages that all believers do partake of the resurrection life of Christ. That's walking in the newness of life. Again, the, par- uh, the partial rapture view is untenable because it, uh, of its works foundation and the fact that the body of Christ will be split up at the rapture. That gives Jesus half a bride at his wedding supper. That's gruesome. <laughs> okay. You know, it says we will all be saved. It doesn't say some will be saved. We will all be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. The only solution that fits the doubt and uncertainty of the passage is that of the rapture. Simply stated, Paul is uncertain, though full of expectancy, as to whether or not he will remain alive until the rapture. Johnson cogently summarizes, Paul's doubt is not concerning the fact of his resurrection, but concerning the circumstances of it. To actually be a living saint when the trumpet sounds and to experience the deathless resurrection that is the transformation of the rapture of the church. A final argument in favor of the rapture view is the unusual word ex-anastasis, the out-resurrection. 
This is its only occurrence in the New Testament, although the similar word anastasis occurs 41 times. 40 of these times refers to the physical resurrection. Note the fact that verse 10 uses anastasis and verse 11 uses ex-anastasis, evidently singling out the latter as having some special significance. Interestingly enough, Hippocrates and Polybius use the word in the sense of rising up into the air. That's kind of a fun usage. This certainly fits the idea of the rapture, and it does account for the change of words. It is our conclusion then that the eschatology of the context, the uncertainty with expectancy of the text, and the hapax legomenon, that's the only use of the word ex anastasis, all together give strong support to the idea that it was Paul's eager anticipation that the rapture might take place at any moment, and that he might therefore remain alive until the rapture and thus be translated. And so that was um, his conclusion, that's my conclusion, and uh, it, uh, I think it unlocks every puzzle quite well. Uh, other people that have found different answers have found other ways to puzzle their way through, I think, in a less satisfactory way. All right. Anyway, there it is, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if perhaps I may attain to the rapture of the church. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for this class. Continue to open our eyes to these teachings. Help us, Father, to digest the difficulties without running from them. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that guides us into all things, even the deep things of God. I thank you, Father, and I praise you for these students and their diligence. I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.